Lecture 16, Choosing Learning Strategies. In any learning situation, we need to be able to devote some attention and working memory and executive function to whether or not we are learning effectively. Judging our own learning is a really important part of the process. If they're accurate, judgments about our own learning can tell us many things. They can tell us what we know and what we don't know, and that's important because that tells us what we need to still focus on in a learning situation, and whether or not we've learned something well enough to remember it later or perform it well. And they can tell us whether we need to actually invest more time and effort in learning something. So this is monitoring of our learning progress. Also, if we need to invest more time and effort, our understanding of our own learning also encompasses the best strategies for how we're going to invest our learning time and effort so it pays off. So let me outline a brief example of these two judgments, knowing what we know and knowing the best strategies for maximizing learning given the time we have to do so. In learning a new piano piece, by monitoring your learning, you know which parts you can play without music versus where you need the music and which parts Even with the music, you really don't have down yet. You don't yet have the motor routines established to play it smoothly and without error. That's the monitoring part. Now the strategy part is somewhat more complicated. Should you memorize the music so you don't need to read? Maybe. Should you invest a lot of time repeatedly playing the section of the piece that you don't have well learned yet and just ignore the part you already know for now? Maybe. If you play that tough part over and over, you may not adequately learn the transition from the easy part to the rough part. So it could be better to just play the whole piece over and over and over again until the entire piece is learned well enough. And should you add to practicing by actually playing the idea of just reading over the musical notes now and then? So, what we can do right away is we can ask how accurate are judgments of learning? and how good are our choices about strategies? And this turns out to be a somewhat complicated question because there are a lot of different types of judgments and choices that we could be making. So, we're going to start with a particular kind of judgment, which is often just labeled judgments of learning. And this is an assessment of the extent to which I feel I have learned something. Often, in the laboratory, these judgments are studied in relation to learning a list of words or word pairs. So for example, I might be asked to learn a set of pairs of words like chair, window, pillow, table, bedsheet, sofa. At some point after I've seen the word pairs, I'm then asked to evaluate whether I'm likely to remember or to put it differently, whether I've learned a given word pair. And often this goes something like the following. If you see the word chair, how likely are you to recall the correct paired word, the word that goes with chair? And usually I'll be asked to rate the likelihood that I'm going to remember that word on a 5 or 7 point scale. Then of course I actually get tested on whether I really do remember this word. Now if we're armed with this technique, we can ask a couple questions. The first question we can ask is how accurate are people at predicting whether they've learned a word pair? Imagine that I say I'll remember about 75% of the words. That is, I give ratings of 5 or higher to 75% of the words I'm shown. And then if I go on on that recall test to get about 75% correct, I've demonstrated pretty high absolute accuracy. 
But you can also ask whether my judgments help differentiate between what I did and did not learn. So if I gave chair window a high judgment of learning, and I gave pillow table a low judgment, and then I go on and I remember window and I don't remember table, I'm showing relative accuracy, even if my ratings were not precisely on target. Now, generally, we're going to care about both of these, but if you think in terms of how to allocate study time and focus study strategies, it's that relative accuracy that's more important for us, knowing what we have versus what we haven't learned. With approaches like this, we can ask how accurately people are able to judge their learning, and it turns out that accuracy depends on a variety of conditions, and it also turns out we're vulnerable to getting tricked in several different ways. That is, we can be inaccurate in ways that researchers can now predict. Now, one important contribution to accuracy is when we're asked to make the judgments. Have you ever sat in a course or another learning situation and thought, yes, yes, wow, I totally get this stuff, and then you go home, and maybe you try to work some homework problems, and you find that suddenly what you thought you knew, you really hadn't learned. It doesn't make sense anymore. If you're asked to judge your learning immediately after you've studied some items, you tend to overestimate your learning. So accuracy is enhanced if you wait a while, and then you consider how well you've learned something. This is likely because in the immediate moment, your new learning feels very accessible, it feels very real, and after a delay, you're going to have a more accurate sense of whether you've really learned that material because you don't have that immediate, just-learned-it illusion of accessibility and understanding. So this all sounds good, but we also base judgments of learning on irrelevant things. One of those things is the ease of processing the information in the first place. So no, I'm not talking here about how easy it really was to learn the material, but how easy it was just to see it. So consider this example. If I present words to you, I might just capriciously decide to present some words very loudly, and I might decide to do others very softly. If I ask you for judgments of learning, you will judge the loud words as better learned than the soft words. But in fact, the loudness of presentation has no bearing on your learning. Softly presented and loudly presented words are just as easily learned, and they're just as easily remembered later. Now, some researchers felt this was because people felt a sense of effort in processing the words. That is, the more effortful it is to process information, the less well we think we've learned that information, even if our judgment, our thoughts about whether we've learned the information, aren't accurate. Another factor that influences judgments of learning is how much time we've spent studying, but this factor is more complicated. In some cases, the more we study something, the more we judge that we've learned it. And that makes sense, right? Because you've invested more time and you should therefore have learned something better. But in other cases, the more we study something, the less we judge that we've learned it. Now, these two sets of findings can only make sense if you think about two different factors that underlie study time choices. We study things longer if they're more important to learn, and then we think of them as better learned. But we also study things longer if we think they're harder, and then we give them lower judgments of learning. Now, if you want to test whether this idea is correct, you need a very clever way to make people feel like something is harder when there's absolutely no real difference in difficulty. And you also need a way to disentangle study time from how difficult the items are. Some researchers named Coriat and Nussensen did this in a, what I think is just an absolutely clever way. 
In a first experiment, they had people study pairs of words. People were told the study was about forehead muscle tension in computer work, and that they'd look at pairs of words on the computer, and they would simulate forehead tension in one of two ways. Now, in one condition, participants had to squint their eyebrows, which is a facial expression that's associated with mental effort. In another condition, participants had to raise their eyebrows, and this makes people think they aren't doing anything effortful. Then people learned paired associates, and they judged their learning. People with the squinted eyebrows made lower judgments of learning, although virtually everything about their experience was identical, except for that furrowed brow. In a second study, Coriat and Nussensen wanted to show that if people attributed their sense of effort to the goal of working harder on some items, rather than to the items being more difficult, they could reverse this effect. In other words, it's not just that you feel you've put in effort. It's also important that you think the reason you put in effort was because the items were hard. Now, to do this, they made people feel time pressure, and they told them. We want you to selectively allocate study time to only some of the items we're asking you to learn, and they ask that people only make the required facial expression—the squinting or the raised eyebrows—when they studied items, and not to do that when they looked at items that they weren't going to actively study. Now, in this instance, people spent most of their study time on easy items, and those who were making squinty eyebrows judged the items as better learned. What people did was to take that squinty-eyed sense of effort and they connected it to studying hard, rather than to the items being difficult. So what this means is that judgments of learning depend on our sense of effort and on how we interpret that sense of effort. Specifically, when we interpret the effort as related to the item difficulty or to the things we're learning being hard. We downgrade our sense that we've learned the item. We don't feel we've learned as much if that effort is connected to the material being hard. When we interpret the effort as related to us investing ourselves in learning, we upgrade our judgments of learning. So when we believe our effort is due to our goals for mastering learning, we feel we've learned more. So in general, we can make judgments of learning, and they're actually pretty accurate. Even though they are subject to some distortions based on our sense of effort, and we can find ways to trick that sense of effort in the laboratory. This is only one step. Given that you've judged your learning, do you then make use of those judgments to guide learning behavior? Do you make strategic use of these judgments? And if so, how? One way to think about the use of judgments has been called a discrepancy reduction account. And what this means is that you use a judgment of learning to determine what you don't know, and then you invest time and study action on the stuff you don't know very well yet. So, a discrepancy reduction account it means you take account of what you don't know, the discrepancy between what you've learned and what you haven't learned, and you use that accounting to focus your studying effort on some parts of the material. So, a lot of this work. Looks at allocating study time to different material rather than on exactly what people do when they are studying. So this discrepancy reduction account gives us the following kind of expectation: we think there's going to be a negative relationship between judgments of learning and allocating study time. So in other words, the more you think you know it, the less you study it. So across 16 studies where researchers measured judgments of learning and study time. Thirteen, the vast majority of those studies, showed a negative relationship between these two, and three showed no relationship. So more broadly, 
Many studies show that people allocate more study time to difficult items, and they also judge learning of difficult items as lower. And all of this is consistent with the notion that when we judge our learning, we use those judgments to strategically put study time into the stuff that we don't know yet. But the relationship goes away under some circumstances. In particular, when people are under time pressure and when you take well-learned items out of the items for you to study. So why would this be? Well, these kinds of findings actually led to a different notion of how judgments of learning affect study behavior. And again, we're still talking in terms of how much time people spend and not what they do. And this new account is called the region of proximal learning framework. So in this framework, people stop working on or studying what they've already learned. And what they then do is they focus on the easiest of the remaining items in the material they're learning, and they shift very gradually towards more difficult items after they feel they've mastered those easier items. Why would we do this? Well, it's actually pretty smart. We do this because the payoff of putting time into the easiest things we haven't yet learned is likely to be really high. We think they're pretty easy. We haven't learned them yet. Putting in a little time is going to yield payoffs. By contrast, a discrepancy reduction model means you could keep investing study time in items that are really hard to learn, and that might eat up your available time, and you might still not be able to learn them. So we choose different strategies about time in relation to how much time we have, what we judge to be easy or difficult to learn, and what we think we have learned versus what we think we haven't learned. Having said this, there are some important possible costs for eliminating easier and already learned items from your study pool. And this brings us to the issue of how people choose to study, not just how much time they allocate. So the most effective strategy for learning is to repeatedly retrieve both items you've already learned and items that you haven't learned as well. So when we choose in studying, to recall and study only the items we haven't yet mastered, we run into a different memory issue that can get in the way of learning, and that's called retrieval-induced forgetting. In retrieval-induced forgetting, people learn a set of items on a list. They might learn, say, a list of types of flowers, and then they selectively practice only some items, and they're asked to not practice others. So over time, people actually forget the unpracticed items, but they forget them more than you'd expect. It's as though failing to practice those items actually makes them get unlearned. So you still have to keep studying the stuff you already know, as well as the stuff you think you haven't mastered yet, if you're going to perform well in a test situation. Now, this raises some questions about whether, even when we use judgments of learning to focus in on what we haven't yet mastered, on whether we know what strategies really work best. So let's briefly consider the importance of repeated testing again here. Remember, every retrieval we do of something we've learned is another rehearsal opportunity. So repeated testing means repeated practice of the thing you're trying to learn to do or learn to remember. Now, in many cases, it is impossible to rehearse something without repeatedly testing ourselves. I can't study a piano piece very well without actually playing it. So studying and testing are the same. But in other cases, say learning foreign vocabulary or learning about learning, I can study words or material by looking at them over and over again rather than trying to generate them from scratch. Generating them from scratch is more like testing. 
Now, one thing we know is that repeated testing is extremely effective for learning and for retaining learning, much more so than simply reading over materials that you can read over, that you can study in a non-test-like way. A lovely series of experiments by Karpicki suggests that in many cases, we do not make good choices about using repeated testing as a learning strategy. And to investigate this, Karpicki did a series of four experiments. In the first, he was concerned with demonstrating two things. First, he wanted to demonstrate that repeated testing was a superior way to learn foreign vocabulary. And second, he wanted to show that repeated testing did not influence people's judgments of learning. That is, people weren't aware of how good it was. In the study, participants learned Swahili words, and they alternated between studying and testing until they had correctly remembered 40 words at least one time. After each test phase, participants judged how well they had learned the words. And as soon as they correctly recalled a word, for some participants, that word was completely dropped from future study and test periods. Now, for others, the word wasn't tested anymore, but it was on their study lists. And for a third group, the word was no longer presented for studying, but it kept getting tested. And one week later, participants took a test on all the vocabulary words. In this initial study, Karpicki found that judgments of learning were highest for people who kept studying all the word pairs, higher than for those who dropped word pairs they'd learned, and for those who were repeatedly tested on already learned words. So repeated testing doesn't increase judgments of learning. That is, people aren't aware that repeated testing is helpful for learning. And that's where that other goal becomes important. Which group learned best? Karpicki found, not surprisingly, that people's learning of the words was far higher in the repeated testing condition. The other conditions were called an average of 35% of the words. Those in the repeated testing condition recalled nearly 75% of the items they'd learned. That is a huge difference. So the take-home picture here is people didn't realize that repeated testing was producing better learning. They weren't aware of that. Now, in that first experiment, participants weren't given choices about what to do. The experimenter determined whether they were going to repeatedly study words or be repeatedly tested or whether they dropped already learned items. So it's not like real-world studying where people make their own choices. So naturally, a next question is going to be, what happens when you let people make their own choices? In the second experiment, Karpicki kept things largely similar. But when people first correctly demonstrated learning a Swahili word, they were asked to determine whether they would drop the word, keep studying the word, or keep testing the word. So participants got to decide how they would proceed with the words. Now, given their own choice, participants usually chose to drop items they'd learned. They only chose to repeatedly test words that they were fairly confident they'd learned extremely well. And they chose repeated study for words they were less confident of having learned. Now, What I want you to see is that this amounts to using the less effective learning strategy on the words that you think require the most learning. In the two additional studies, Karpicki went on to show that attempting retrieval testing early, before people really have learned much, actually substantially improves how effective it is to study. So forcing people to take a test well before they're ready meant that afterwards, as they studied, they actually learned more. And, as with this issue of testing as a form of studying, Karpicki found that people did not make use of this approach, given the choice they always opted to delay testing and to engage in more study.
Now, what might be going on there has to do with anxiety about being tested. Apparently, being tested is scary even if we do it to ourselves and there aren't any real risks involved. There's no risk of being wrong or not knowing um, in studying, right? So reading over the words is what we'd prefer to do rather than give ourselves a test. But why people are so reluctant to, avo- to, to do self-testing is a question where we really just don't know the answer yet. And it's going to be important to find out why if we want to persuade them to change and to actually make use of self-testing as a better way to learn new material. Now, a few other studies on learning strategies warrant some consideration here. Many of them come from Henry Rüdiger and his many collaborators. One involved looking at reading strategies and learning from texts. And in this particular study, the researchers examined recall of text passages based on three different study approaches. In one approach, participants just reread the passage. This is what my undergraduate students do routinely when they study material they're learning. In another condition, participants answered experimenter-generated questions. And this is sort of like having to respond to thought questions about a text. And in still a third condition, participants had to generate and then answer their own questions. Now, participants were then asked to predict their own performance, which is fairly similar to judgments of learning. And participants thought generating and answering their own questions was related to significantly better learning. Now, as it turned out, answering anyone's questions, theirs or the experimenters, led to improved performance. And here, I think we see some more of that effortfulness leading to higher judgments of learning, even when, in this case, there was no payoff for effort. It was actually more effort to make up and answer questions than just to answer the ones that the researcher posed, but that extra effort didn't really help learning. Another study from this same group of people looked at people's learning of sentences. Some sentences were harder to understand, and you needed a clue in order to make sense of them. So to give you an example, one sentence was, the notes were sour because the seam split. This is not easy to understand unless you have a clue, and the clue in this case is bagpipe. Now, other sentences like, the colors appeared because the rain stopped, are fairly easy to figure out even when you don't have the clue, and the clue in that case was rainbow. People were shown the sentences in three different ways. They were given the sentences without clues, with the clues given right away, and with the clues given after some delay during which participants tried to figure the sentence out on their own. They were also asked to make judgments of comprehension and learning. Judgments of learning were lower when people didn't get clues at all, but they weren't lower when they got the clue after a delay. But here's the kind of important piece of that. Waiting for the cue, having to try to figure out the sentence on your own before you got the cue, actually produced better learning of the sentences. And this is because people had to puzzle a little while. And again, people didn't realize this was the case. So where does all this leave us? Well, first of all, judgments of learning are tightly tied to effort, and they're pretty accurate. They're accurate enough to serve as a guide to where and how to invest learning efforts. We're pretty decent at monitoring what we do and do not know. And we can be subtle and strategic about how we use that information to determine what items deserve our studying effort in terms of time. Where the good news breaks down is around the issue of how we choose learning strategies once we take into account judgments of learning and identify items to focus our study efforts on. And the good news breaks down in several ways. And here I want to recap those ways and I want to connect them to some everyday examples. 
So first, we tend to stop studying and testing ourselves on things we think we've already learned. But this turns out to be a way to unlearn those things. So once you've learned that ein Hund is a dog, it doesn't mean you should just stop trying to retrieve Hund now and then. In fact, you should occasionally try to say Hund. Now, you'll notice that some types of learning are going to have built-in protections about this. Musicians often play pieces they already know and have already learned because it's fun. So they may not consider this part of learning or part of the maintenance of learning, but it ends up having the same effect. But in other cases, like learning foreign languages while being in your home country, we may be quite vulnerable to the tendency to just stop studying and stop testing what we have already learned. Second, we tend to make way too little use of testing as a strategy for learning. And again, some types of learning, learning from what we read, learning lists of vocabulary words, are more vulnerable to this problem than others, like motor learning, where it's difficult to study without actually testing. We don't use repeated testing nearly as often as we use other, much less effective strategies like rereading or studying items. We also tend to use it late in the game. We use it when we feel we've already learned something. People in most of the studies reviewed earlier want to focus self-testing on things they, over, they are sure they know, things where they have a lot of confidence. Now, unfortunately, early in the learning process, testing makes studying work better. So in a way, we really ought to begin with testing ourselves and then go to studying. But unfortunately, people prefer on their own the reverse order. What I encourage my students to do, and you as well, is that if you want to learn something, study by testing yourself. Sometimes I actually tell students to do a blank piece of paper approach. Once you've encountered material you want to learn, whip out a blank piece of paper and try to write everything you can recall from the material, and then go back and look at the material again and try another blank piece of paper. This is the way we can use repeated testing to enhance learning for material that might not otherwise lend itself to that approach. Or, to put that slightly differently, this is a way you can use self-testing to learn material where it's very easy to become a passive recipient, a passive reader-over, rather than an active, purposeful, engaged learner. In this lecture, we have focused on monitoring whether or not we have learned something. But another thing we might want to keep track of is where, when, and from whom we've learned something, because some people and contexts are better and more reliable sources than others. And this is an issue we're going to take up in the next lecture.